You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Ain't no sense in going home. Ain't no sense in going home. Jody's got her girl and gone. Jody's got your girl and gone. Ain't no sense in feeling blue. Ain't no sense in feeling blue. Jody's got your sister too. Jody's got your sister too. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. Break it on down. One, two, three, four. One, One two, three, three four. four. Hey, hey, Sergeant Hardy. Hey, hey, Sergeant Hardy. Tell by your car you like to party. Tell by your car you like to party. Come to the dormitory after 10. Come to the dormitory after 10. Okay, folks, that can mean only one thing. Uh, we got a Jody going, and it's time for David's pick. And uh, love to start our show off with a Jody, and that everybody remembers when you were going through basic or going through anything in the military. Any branch of them. Well, the only one I can't address is the Navy. I I don't know how far they can go on one side of the ship before they fall in the water. But anyway, I uh, love those Jodies, and quite frankly, they got me through a lot of uh, of uh, tough force marches and double time and everything else by listening to them. And I don't know of a person that's been in the military that doesn't love and has a favorite Jody of one kind or the other. And uh, with that being said, we've got a very special, special guest on today. It's Colonel Retired William T. Whitey White, and uh, we're going to get to uh, Whitey in just a moment. But like I've started all of my shows lately, is that uh, because of a very close friend of mine, and I'm sure they're very, very or a number of instances like this across the country with the folks that are listening and are vets that uh, you've got a friend or had a friend that uh, was uh, exposed more drastically than necessary to Agent Orange. And I'm glad to say I talked to my friend that we started this uh, when he was having surgery and because of Agent Orange, and uh, he's doing quite well now and has gotten his speech back and uh, i'm very very proud of of jay roy and i dedicate uh, a moment of silence to him every week and so with that being said if you all don't mind just uh, give us a, a moment of silence and thank everybody and thank the vets for doing what they've done our active duty folks and also Keep in mind our first responders. So with that, we'll come back in just about 30 seconds, a minute, and start talking to Whitey White, retired Lieutenant Colonel Whitey White. And he is great and has done one of everything. And we'll go into that in just a moment. So I'll be back momentarily.
Okay, with that, uh, thank you for taking a moment with us on America's Web Radio. And now I'd like to introduce William T. White, retired Lieutenant Colonel William T. White. And uh, like with all officers, uh, because I was enlisted, I stand at attention while we're doing the show. Uh, sir, how you doing? Hey, good morning, David. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Uh, do you mind giving me a parade rest at some point? I was just going to say, uh, be at ease, please. Thank you, sir. Uh, all the respect in the world for the officers and what they have done and given us. And I've got to make one political comment, and that is that no matter what happens, we still have the best country in the world, and we have the best military and the best folks serving in our military of any place in the world. And I am delighted that uh, I can interview our veterans. I can interview folks that are active duty right now. And as I always mention, I uh, did not serve in Nam. I'm what they call now a Vietnam-era veteran. And... What that means is that it's all in spelling of the word era. I spell it E-R-R-O-R, and the VA spells it E-R-A. But, you know, I made plenty of mistakes when I was in, so I figure it must be E-R-R-O-R, era. But anyway, so Lieutenant Colonel White, better known as Whitey, and if you don't mind me calling you that, I'd appreciate it, sir. Uh, not at all. In fact, uh, I, I think most everyone that I know uh, calls me by that call sign. And, you know, I have all the respect in the world for Whitey in that he used to put my tax dollar and your tax dollar, a million or better, more than a million out of whack, on a postage stamp. He was a Navy fighter pilot, and I don't know, did it, how often do they check your sanity putting a plane on a floating, rocking ship? I mean, you sort of got to be out of you got to be a little crazy to do that, don't you? You do, David. It's, uh, it, you know, back in, the, back in the 60s, the United States sent a monkey up in a spaceship to prove that we could do it, and, uh, you know... They were crazy to think of doing something like that. And when you think about landing a, an aircraft on a carrier at 150 miles an hour in a, in a very small angled runway that's pitching up and down, uh, you, you do have to be a little bit on the crazy side. <laughs> All it takes is one oops. It, you know, we, did, we go through uh, months and months of training. I was... Just to, to clarify, in the I was in the A6 Intruder to start with as a uh, bombardier navigator. I was the last one to get to the fleet, so I only got to spend about five years in the platform and uh, ended up doing a deployment on the USS Enterprise back in 1996. It was the last deployment of the uh, of the A6 Intruder, and during all those all those months leading up to it, we did months and months of training and and uh, spent you know, hundreds of hours getting ready to deploy. So, you know, you get to, you, I won't say you ever become complacent with landing on an aircraft carrier, but you get to the point where 
where your muscle memory takes over and you're able to uh, focus on things around you and then still get the uh, aircraft back on the deck. I tell you, I, I was a general aviation, and um, I was always delighted when I walked away from the plane, you know. But Every, every good landing is, or every landing is a good landing. Yes, sir. And what do they used to call it? It was a controlled crash? That's right. Yes, sir. It, uh-huh. You know, you're, as you're coming in, uh, during the daytime, and I'll just plug the, the Navy side of the flying for a second. During the daytime, when you're holding overhead the carrier, everyone is stacked at, at different thousand-foot intervals, depending on what platform you were flying. And, and my reference is from 20 years ago, so I, they may have changed slightly. But, you know, you, after your mission, you would come back and you would hold overhead the, the aircraft carrier on a, on a nice day. And I'm telling you, it is a, choreogra- uh, a choreographed ballet on how everything is done without a single word being spoken on the radio. Every, everything's done visually. And it is just some of the most fun that you can have, uh, better than, than any ride at Disney. <laughs> where you're coming in, you know, for the takeoffs, you go from zero to 150 knots roughly um, in 1.8 seconds. And for me, I mean, it's just a very dynamic environment. And then when you're coming in to a, for a landing during the daytime, everything is, you know, very quiet because you're not, no one's talking on the radio. And uh, you go from 125, 130 miles an hour or 100 knots, I should say, um, to, to zero if you obviously catch the wire so uh so it, it's extremely uh dynamic lots of things are happening even though there's not a whole lot of chatter going on the radio a lot of fun really why, daytime is a lot of fun why was that uh when you're talking about no uh audio uh, communication uh was that uh, light signals or is it the uh, flag signals or the pallet type <laughs> signals well when uh so when you when you come back to the ship from your mission you're everyone's holding overhead and the intruders we were at eight thousand feet so we or i'm sorry six thousand feet so we would be holding and there would be f-14s below us and f-18s would be below them because they were so short of fuel but after the the, the next cycle every every event is called a cycle after the next cycle launched all the airplanes that were going out those of us that were overhead, there would be a what's called a yellow gear, uh, uh, one of the things that pulls the aircraft around the around the flight deck to park them. Mm-hmm. It, w- it would be sitting in the middle of the flight deck. Well, when they moved that, everybody would just start descending and in, in like kind of like a corkscrew fashion, and then you would drop down to eight hundred feet, come in for the break, and uh, you, if you're a flight of two or more, everybody breaks at different intervals. And as you're coming around, you get the gear down at the one at the uh, about the 180, maybe the 90, depending on how fast you're going. But uh, we're, we were landing once we got good at it. We were landing aircraft about every 45 to 50 seconds. Wow! And uh, yeah, was, how far out would you go in your holding pattern away from the uh, landing craft? Well, during the uh, during the day, the uh, or during operations, the the intruder was known for its capability of of getting um, into deep targets. They would uh, we had the ability to refuel in flight, and we had the ability to get fuel. Had you know if we had extra. So 
uh, everyone would coordinate depending on what the mission was as to who's going to be in what uh, uh, in what position on the strike. And so as you would come back over overhead, if you had extra gas, you would just go as fast as you could because obviously it's a lot more fun. But if you were low on fuel, then you would have to uh, come back on the throttles and, and try to conserve it so that you would have fuel to get, obviously, back to the ship. And you have different what we call ladders uh, that, that you would you – would you know, if you were 10 minutes from landing, you needed such amount of fuel. If you were half an hour from landing or 45 minutes or an hour, you know, depending on what it was – then you you would know what your what your schedule was for the fuel burn, and so you could determine, you know, how far you could go. And um, and and then of course there were tankers that were always there, born that would help you out if you know an emergency arose or some issue where you couldn't get back on the ship. So uh, whoever the brain trust that designed all these uh, carrier operations uh, over the over the decades uh, did a very very well thought out plan to get the aircraft on and off the ship. That's okay. that, that's daytime. Without, Nighttime's a little without little uh, without uh, uh, communications, uh, audio communications. If you'd taken fire and had been hit, how would you uh, notify the ship that uh, you know? Now, I'm, when I say there, when I say it's uh, no no audio, that's if everything's going you know normal. Obviously, if you have an emergency or if you're in some kind of situation that you need to get on, you know, if you're men or emergency fuel, we call them Joker and Bingo. If you're you know if you're at emergency fuel, then obviously you're going to be talking to someone because as you're coming in, you're probably would be given first priority. To, uh, to land since you're low on fuel. And if you miss the wire or, you know, have to go around for some other reason, then sometimes there would, if needed, there would be a, an airborne tanker that would meet you just as you came off the ship. And I, I did that role several times when we had uh, some Hornets and Tomcats that needed to get a little extra gas in order because they were having a rough, rough time trying to get on the ship. And, you know, it, it's people thinking about landing on, landing on an aircraft carrier you know, as you're flying straight into it, you, you have to realize that the air, the runway is turned 10 or 11 degrees, depending on which ship you're on. And then so you have to kind of fly to where it's going to be. And then as you get as you're coming around at the at the 45, we call it, you get a lot of turbulent wind that's coming off the the tower, the superstructure of the aircraft carrier, because they're moving about you know 10 or 15 knots and so depending on how much wind is being blown over the deck they need about 24 knots of wind in order to to recover the aircraft so you know there's a lot of things that come into play there you've got uh, the angle of the runway if it's rough seas it could be doing what's called a dutch roll where it's pitching up and down and sideways then you've got the, the the turbulence of the the wind as a, as the superstructure of the aircraft carrier is moving, you know. So it, it it's a lot of things that go into it. And uh, the, it's and not the, just fly straight in. The carrier's turning into the wind, so you'll uh, so you'll be landing into the wind, correct? Yes, sir. You want to have about for us, it was a uh, twenty-two to twenty-four knots of wind over the flight deck. Now, if they had natural wind or a combination, or or they had to generate the wind themselves by driving the aircraft carrier that that fast, or a combination of the two, 
depending on, on what the situation was, that's, that's kind of the amount of wind you wanted coming across the flight deck. I can't imagine landing <laughs> on a on an aircraft carrier, you know, in a 30, 40 second span, every 30 or 40 second spans. And, you know, I applaud all the time. I think our Constitution is one of the grandest documents ever written in history. And then I look at where we have advanced technologically with aircraft carriers and our aircraft and everything else we uh, we are the greatest country in the world and our our uh, we'll run a, a spot here in a second and i promote every kid that's tra- graduating from high school or college if they haven't decided on what they want to do in life take a look at the military I know my son that's a major in the Air Force loves it. And if I were 110 years younger uh, and had the opportunity to go back through it, I think I would seriously look at, uh, you know, staying in. And uh, it's just a great, great business to be in, occupation. Uh, The the fringe benefits... if I could, if I could just kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Yes, sir. The uh, I, I I love the military. Obviously, I did my first career in it. Uh, made made lifelong friends, and I think that you need to have in order, you know, for some of these young men and women that are coming out of school now, you need to have that mentality of, you know, I'm here to do what my superiors tell me to do. Every one of us have a a superior officer. Whether it's all the way up to the president who is answering to the to the taxpayer, but you have to be able to follow orders. You have to be able to give tough orders sometimes. Um, with all of that said, though, I don't think that the military should be used as a social experiment. So, um, if you're able to um, complete the mission, male or female, black or white, gay or uh, straight, you know irrelevant you know if, as long as as long as you can do the mission and you have the desire to make make our military stronger and better I, I believe the military is for you but if you're there to try to change the way things are have been done then you know you're going to meet with resistance from from a lot of the higher ups because right now the military works very well we are a, an efficient machine Oh, it's just absolutely, to me, just absolutely incredible. And uh, you made a point. The people that have, and and this could only be for one reason, and that's dedication. The people that have gone before all of us that have worked out the ideas, put ideas into play, said, hey, we can make a plane land on on a ship at sea. You know, that... That had to take some forethought, too, and what they've done with it and what they've done with weapons, what we've done with everything to make. And it's because we are a free country, and there is no limit on imagination in the United States. You can be what you want to be, and you can dream the biggest dreams in the world. And if there's a place that can provide or, or make those dreams come true... It's the United States, and in many, many, many cases, I just, you know, I cringed when um, 
NASA was shut down because of the of the great, great, incredible technology and products that came out of NASA, you know, in the beginning. And now we're back to it. And hopefully, uh, again, those uh, those rewards, you know, imagination and following through is is just incredible. And, you know, uh, who knows what what they'll thunk of next, you know? It's just... Well, uh, well uh, you know, being a, uh, a aerospace engineering graduate of Mississippi State, we have... Um, Heck, a lot of people uh, didn't lot even of know... That are, a lot of people didn't even know Mississippi uh, had that kind of degree. They thought they thought it was all uh, fried chicken and uh, pumpkin pie. <laughs> well, you know, there was, there was initially a lot of that because it wasn't agriculture and mechanical... Uh, when it first was founded in 1878, but it has uh, developed into uh, a fairly reputable uh, engineering school. And we, we supply a lot of engineers to the um, Redstone Arsenal Huntsville area. Mm-hmm. And several of my friends are kind of kind of higher up GS-15s over there. And I uh, was talking with one of them the other day and had mentioned to him that I was interested in, in being a, an astronaut because I wanted to be the first man to Mars when they send someone uh, later this decade, and he, he told me, uh, his name is Greg, and he said, Whitey, you uh, you do realize that the first trip is going to be a one-way only, and I said, well, you know, maybe I won't be volunteering for that one just yet. <laughs> well, I, I hadn't heard that. I didn't know that. Well, I mean, this was a couple of, this was uh, last year, so um, hopefully uh, we'll be able to put another man on the moon, and, and then maybe even uh, send a person to Mars. Wow. Well, if any country can, it's the United States of America. You know, you mentioned something uh, early on, too, and and I say this every time, is that, in my opinion, the military is the biggest fraternity and sorority in the world. And you meet people that are lifelong friends, just like you've said, and uh, you also... You know, you walk into a restaurant, you walk into the airport, wherever it might be, and one vet can pick out another vet in a heartbeat. And if they're not wearing their caps from a, a, a deployed ship at some point or the other, uh, you still can pick them out. And if they are in uniform, please thank them and buy them dinner or lunch or whatever it might yeah, be. I, I- you know, there were there were many. Yeah, I, I came on just after Desert Storm, and there was a, 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 I spent a lot of time in the in the Masonic organization, which has a lot of veterans in it, but most of them are the uh, Vietnam and Korea era, and so I do I go out of my way to thank them, and and if I'm able to purchase them a, a meal just to say thank you for everything they did, because all their sacrifices made it much easier for me to. Uh, in my career, so I'm, I'm extremely grateful to those that I see out there. Nicely said, sir. I I appreciate that. My dad was uh, Navy and uh, a commander in the Navy, and was also a Mason, 32nd degree. And uh, I fail my family only one one big way that I know of, and that's uh, that I haven't. Uh, I didn't become a mason and my dad and my both grandfathers and uh wanted 
you know, and I just didn't ever make the cut. But anyway, uh, with that being said, you've you've gotten more. I've got to ask one that I don't know about is the Oglethorpe Medal. What is what is that, sir? Well, when I left the you know, I was the last. Uh, I was the last bombardier navigator. I was the last person actually to get to the intruder fleet, so I was only there for a short time. So when that when they decommissioned that community, the A six intruder. I went over to the Air Force as a Navy guy to fly in the F-15E model, the Strike Eagle, down at Seymour Johnson. And that was a three-year tour. So when that tour was up, as a Navy guy, I got out and went to – I left active duty and went to the Georgia Air National Guard full-time and was uh, started off in the the B-1 bomber. And then uh, there were two units that had it. So the active duty pulled those back from the Guard unit – we ended up flying in Joint Star. So I say all of that. That's what I retired out of. I say all that to to say that when I went to retire, typically, you know, everyone is given a retirement medal. And uh, they they started asking, you know, about my history as a flyer. And being in those platforms, I was the only person in the history of aviation to ever have been uh, combat rated in those platforms. So... They wanted to, from the story I was told by the commander uh, when I was retiring, was that they wanted to do something a little bit more special than just a normal achievement or meritorious service medal. So for the state of Georgia, we have what's called the Oglethorpe Award. And it's uh, it's worn around the neck as a medallion, but it's, it's to honor your entire career of military service. And being the being the only person that was ever combat rated in those platforms, they they awarded me that that medal, and I was the only the second person, and I don't believe anyone has since been awarded that medal in the state of Georgia. In in your bio, it does seem like you uh, you closed a few platforms. <laughs> I couldn't keep a job, is what I, <laughs> what I've been told. Well, with that being said, we're going to take one quick break, and we'll be back with Lieutenant Colonel William T. White, Whitey White, uh, right after this. And uh, stay with us. This is fun. I love it. Training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering. Whitey, am I missing anything? Your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Well, good. And uh, I'll, uh, we'll come back in You're just listening to about America's three Web seconds. Radio Hang on. On the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the air with uh, Whitey White. Uh Retired Lieutenant Colonel, and uh, you know, I made you a promise, Whitey, that I wouldn't ask any hardball questions or something that might stump you or embarrass you or anything like that. But uh, I've 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 got to renege on my promise to you, and I always ask one one question of my guests, and it's a pretty hard one, so be prepared. Uh, get your hand, hand on. Get your hand on the yoke and uh, be ready to shoot me down or whatever. Can you name one veteran friend of yours or one veteran that you know 
that can tell only one story. They, they can tell a story? Tell only one. When when oh, a veteran no. gets to talking, he goes from <laughs> one story to... I've never seen a veteran that can only tell one story. You know, I, I've been very fortunate to have been in multiple platforms and multiple services and and have a long, long, frist, long list of friends that are what I consider true American heroes. And every one of them has... 20 or 30 stories that they could tell you without even sitting down to think about it. I mean, it, it, we, we're very fortunate in the military to be able to experience a lot of different things. And so we make some, some very vivid memories with our friends, our oh. brothers and sisters in arms. You get in a situation that you've got about six or eight veterans at a table and you get into the one-ups. <laughs> well, he did it's, that, uh, but wait until you hear this story. <laughs> You know, and and God bless those guys that are sitting around that table because they're the ones that, you know, did did all the uh, the, the 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 hard work you might say that that made it much easier for those of us who are coming along after them. So the heavy I, anytime I get an opportunity to listen to them, I, I take that chance. All right, you know, and and uh, it, it's a shame because while it it's nature, it happens. But we're losing so many of our World War II veterans, and now it's creeped into our Korean veterans, and and it's also now with our Vietnam veterans. And um, yeah, I, I bless you know the I bless people uh, like uh, Babcock that writes these stories down and has published a lot of them. And um, there are so many great, great stories. And uh, like I said earlier. Please, if you're graduating from high school or college and you're not sure what you want to do, take a look at the military. I agree. Uh, the uh, I'm a member of the Red River Valley Fighter Pilot Association, which is a unit that was created uh, right after Vietnam by some of the Air Force icons, uh, Robin Olds and, and some of those guys. And they're all, we, it's gotten so bad with some of the, the radiation and the Agent Orange and a lot of that stuff that the, even the flyers are coming into that they formed their own medical committee in order to try to get the VA to start taking a harder look at it. Well, this is one thing that I applauded uh, and still applaud President Trump for signing was the Blue Water Bill. Uh, Agreed, yes. You know, that... If people don't know what that was, it was that uh, folks in the Navy and Coast Guard, and a lot of folks don't understand or don't know that the Coast Guard played a very active role in Vietnam. And uh, they would get sprayed with Agent Orange, and then now they couldn't, or in the past few years, they couldn't get claims in the VA or uh, any medication or any medical treatment because of Agent Orange because... Our government said, well, you were Navy, you weren't in-country, and they were sitting offshore and getting sprayed. And, uh, right. You know, so I'm yeah, glad the, that that's been taken care of. I am, too. The uh, I mean, as a Navy guy, we used to pick on the, guy, on the Coast Guard guys, saying that they were brown water ops, you know, <laughs> meaning that they, they never went 12 miles past the, the coastline, but... I was sitting, uh, it was, I remember it like it was yesterday, it was 
uh, August 1996, I was sitting in my jet on the flight deck in full flight gear in the Persian Gulf, and I, it must have been 130 degrees in the cockpit wow. since we weren't cranked up. And I'm sitting there sweating like crazy, thinking, what in the world am I doing right now? <laughs> and uh, alongside us in the Persian Gulf, a uh, Coast Guard cutter pulls right up and, and is steaming alongside of us. So when I saw that, I, I had to change my uh, tune. I've got a lot of respect for the guys in the Coast Guard now. Well, you know, I I did the same thing with conscientious objectors in during the Vietnam period. And uh, so many of them are heroes, just as I always salute our dust-off pilots. They saved so many lives, and uh, yes, so sir. did conscientious objectors that wouldn't carry a weapon, but they carried that Red Cross bag and would go into the heaviest of battles to save wounded. And, uh, you know, this is uh, we had a show on earlier today our uh, doctor's lounge and uh dr shears was doing the show today uh, i kept thinking and i've said this a million times educate yourself educate yourself we got the greatest opportunity to have learning of all sorts and you can do it by yourself in front of your computer you can google almost anything and come up with an answer and learn about what's happening i never until oh maybe 10 years ago or so i and and i was in the vietnam era but i didn't know what a role the coast guard played in it i had no idea nor did anybody else ever say anything i don't remember ever hearing anything about the u.s coast guard being in vietnam and yet they were and they did the river uh, duty a lot and uh, you know and they did and we we had a lot of a lot of uh you know the special ops units that would uh spend a lot of time in the in the small pt boats that would you know spend um spend a lot of their missions going up and down the inner uh not intercoastal water but the those small rivers and uh streams that fed into the the gulf they they would end up, you know, spend a lot of their time up in there, and a lot of those guys were Coast Guard supported. So, hats off to those guys. You know, and one other group that I I knew, a friend of mine's father was in it, and I didn't know what the hell it was. But another group that is finally getting some recognition is the Merchant Marines during World War II. Um, they were carrying supplies. They were unarmed ships carrying supplies to Europe and and I assume in the Pacific as well and um, you know they were sunk they were shot at they were everything at and uh, they had absolutely no recognition until even the past few years and uh, I want to they, they certainly deserve I don't I don't know what they have now is what they're getting as far as but if if uh they if someone was a merchant marine i certainly do appreciate what they did for us uh when they were serving and i don't even know if they're still in service they are they are they are they even have they even have an academy up in the northeast part of the country the uh one of my uh my son is a high school junior 
and some of his, uh, he's captain of the swim team now, and some of the guys he swam with prior to this year are actually at the Coast Guard Academy and at the Merchant Marine Academy. So they're, they're still doing quite a bit. And it's, it's, when you talk about how these, the Merchant Marines and the, the Navy supplied all of, or had so many supplies at sea at any time, and we still do even today. One of the neatest things I've ever seen, David, is we were steaming along in the uh, Mediterranean, and a ship pulls up next to us. It's called uh, an unrep, an underway replenishment. And what they do is they shoot lines from one ship to the other, and then they'll tow cables over. The two ships are cruising along at, you know, 10 or 12 knots, basically tied together, and they're bringing supplies from one ship to to the carrier to include fuel, Food, you know, everything you need to uh, to conduct the mission that you that you're tasked with, and that and then when they're done, just kind of watch it pull away. It's really a, a unique um, sight to see because you okay. don't typically see two ships that big that close together. Okay, Whitey, I got to ask uh, because I'm a cynic and and I've got a sick mind. How did they keep <laughs> from bumping into each other? Well, they have, you know, you have people that are up in the control area, control towers for both, and they're, they know that the, the, it's like flying formation. The, the big, the lead aircraft, or in this case, the biggest ship, the aircraft carrier, is steaming along at a certain path at a certain speed. It's the job of the, the, the wingmen in the aircraft or the ship that's doing the underway replenishment to make sure that they are at the exact speed and location that they need to be in order not to uh, collide with each other. So it's, it's really unique. So the guy that's doing it that's in the lead or the ship that's in the lead has to be very steady because everyone else is keying off of that. And so it takes a lot. I'm sure it takes a lot of work for the ship company guys, the black shoes, as we call them, <laughs> they, uh, for them to do that, but just like it does for us in the aircraft not to run into each other. It's, uh, it takes a lot of practice. Well, the aircraft, I can understand. The ships uh, takes a hell of a driver. Oh, it right. does. I guess it really that's does. A, I guess that's the captain, not the driver. But anyway. Um, well, I, he's, he's barking <laughs> down the orders to them. And, it, and you see this even on uh, cruise ships, you know, as they're pulling into a dock, mm-hmm. how, they, how they'll maneuver it so that they don't hit the dock. Now, they've got tugboats and stuff to assist. But a lot of the times it's, uh, it's, it's the captain giving the orders to uh, – on how to how to maneuver. Wow! Oh, this is so interesting, Whitey. I I don't know how to tell you how much I appreciate all the information that you're uh, giving us, and I'm enjoying it. Let me ask, what's what is your favorite story? Uh, if we're talking military aviation related, um, it, it was. It's kind of, you know, as a as a combat aviator, you're trained to destroy targets. I mean, that's that's just the nature of war. And we were in Kuwait, and there was a convoy, and this was, you know, some Iraqis, as I understood it, from post, uh, what they call post-BDA, post-damage assessment, um, were, were from what we call the bad guys, you know, the Iraqis, and we rolled in with uh, the Markai 
or the Mark 20 rock eye weapon. It's 247 little bombs inside of a, a what's called a clamshell. It's inside of one bomb, and where I had 12 of those on the on the aircraft and. To find that convoy and to take that convoy out was probably one of the most rewarding experiences that I've had as a combat aviator. I really enjoyed the challenge of that. Now, what would I, and I'm just curious because I, I hadn't heard of that, but uh, was it considered a smart bomb as well? Could you direct it? Can you hear me, David? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. The uh, it was it's not a what we call a smart weapon in today's standards. Um, it didn't have the it had a fuse on the front of it in order for the the clamshell to open so that the little two hundred forty seven little bomblets could spread out. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, post release guided, meaning it did it didn't use GPS. It didn't use a laser. It didn't use IR any of those type stuff. Once you released it. Basically, uh, it, it went where you were telling it to go. You didn't have any control over it after it came off the jet. Today's weapons, uh, and I was very fortunate to carry most of them as well, um, you, you, since collateral damage is such a big issue, as it should be, when, when the enemy is hiding in a mosque or in a, near a school or church or something like that, you have to be very precise. So... We developed uh, weapons that you could laze the target with a combat laser, and the weapon would fly. And, and many of us saw it on the Desert Storm videos of the uh, the weapon that went through the window or down the chimney. Right. So that was put on there by a, you know a laser, or the the controller was flying it using uh, electro optical or infrared. Or some even now they have uh, GPS guided weapons that are extremely accurate as well, and even one aircraft can release them, and another aircraft can control them. So it's very, very um, technologically advanced weapons that we have today. Are uh, to your knowledge, and if it's something that you can't talk about, then obviously uh, uh, disregard. But um, are we the most collaterally damaged uh, control country in the world? And we care more about, you know, and two things. One is that the United States, uh, I think, probably is more concerned about collateral damage than any other country in the world. And the second thing is we may destroy that country, but we're also the first ones back in it to help rebuild it. And Vietnam is a good example of that. And, uh, you know, and we offer well, our the, services it, it, beyond you know, belief. You're opening kind of a you're, – you're going to open a little bit of a can of worms with this. You know, back in World War II, we just carpet bombed the living daylights out of the enemy who didn't – we didn't care that, you know, houses and schools and all that stuff. Well, I mean, we cared, but we just couldn't prevent that from happening. Well, as technology has increased, we've become more able to deliver a smaller weapon in a more precise fashion so that we can control collateral damage because we don't want to kill anyone that's innocent, a, a child or a family member or something, you know, someone that's, that's not their their profession is not uh, the military, 
So we, we do our very best in order to prevent doing that at all costs if we can. And, and we have the technology such that, um, you know, we're able to put, instead of carpet bombing with, uh, with you know, 50 500-pounders, you can now take one 250-pounder and fly it into a very precise location and probably do even more damage than, uh, you know, carpet bombing. So, yeah, we're very, we're very cognizant of that. Now, uh, most, you know, since the Geneva Convention, most countries have tried to adhere to that, that philosophy, but, you know, there's a lot of people that, or a lot of countries that, that don't. I mean, they, they, as you saw with Saddam Hussein, he even used chemical weapons on his own people. Yeah. So there are a lot of dictators that, that need to be removed and have been removed in order to save the, you know, the, 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 the innocent population, you might say. Now, with that said, I personally don't believe it's the job of the military to go back in and rebuild. I believe there, you know, there are other organizations that, you know, the job of the military is get in, kill the enemy, you know, achieve the target, whatever that, that may be, whatever your goal is, and then get out. Now, there are units that, that and organizations, they are designed to then go in and rebuild bridges if, the, if they were taken out and, and do all the different things that need to, to help rebuild the infrastructure. But the military's job is not to rebuild it, in my opinion. Ours is to destroy it uh, if, that's, if that's called upon. I agree. And uh, in, a, if, in my opinion, if you're fired at then it's our job to squelch all fire and if you're the strongest be the strongest in everything that we do don't go into it half halfway go into it to win and that's that's where we had a lot of problems in vietnam and yes, uh, a lot of misunderstanding and whatever else you want to call it but uh you know Hopefully today it's it's somewhat different, and uh, it'll depend on whether it stays that way or not in the next few days. But um, <laughs> we, we, won't, we won't go there, but uh, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. Um, I do, yeah, sure. So in your opinion, were we prepared to go into uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm? Uh, given the intelligence that we had at the time, I believe we were more than prepared. You know, we spent approximately six months there in Saudi Arabia and, and in the Persian Gulf and different allied countries preparing for all of that. In fact, so much so that we used that known uh, operations and exercises, General Schwarzkopf, then, you know, did that fake uh, where where it, it was reported that all these Troops were going to be coming in from one direction, and he actually brought them in from the other direction. What that did basically was just not only did it completely confuse the enemy, but we were able to take that that tactic and utterly catch them by surprise and just took them out in just a matter of days instead of what could have gone on for weeks and months. And he he uh, that was a brilliant move um, to do that because. They they were thinking we were coming from one direction, and he used all that all that last six months of operations and preparation to to come around and, and attack them from behind. So we were basically able to to say you know we didn't have to kill a lot quite a few of them, but uh, we were 
quite effective in in the in that tactic. I thought. I believe it was the end run. Yes, sir. That's uh, what that's what he called it. In fact, you know, we had a lot of we we developed some brand new weapon. I don't want to get off on a on a rabbit hole here, but you know, there's a weapon that uh, that the Air Force carries. It's a five thousand pound, basically a, a tank barrel that they turn into a weapon, and it's called the Bunker Buster. Oh yeah. Uh, that we were that we ended up would we would drop it. Uh, you know, uh, it would go a hundred feet down in the ground before it ever exploded because that was where the bunkers were. And so we developed that in like 47 days. Wow. You know, something like that now takes years, but because of the, of the battle that was coming up during operation, operation desert shield, everyone down at uh, Eglin had, had just cranked that thing out and it became, you know, one of the, one of the things that ended up shortening the war for us. So it was our, our, while people would give the military guys all the credit, the, the engineers and the tacticians and all of them that are civilians that do a lot of the support work for the military, they deserve a lot of the credit as well. One of the things that uh, uh, is, in my opinion, somewhat overlooked, but not, not totally, but, you know, Saddam Hussein was an idiot and a narcissistic idiot at that. And, uh, you know, he was not a military man. Uh, he had not gone to any military schools or learned, he was not a, a strategist or anything else. He was just a bully. And uh, bullies don't necessarily win, you know. And I think this is uh, one of the reasons that – and Schwarzkopf, no doubt, he was a military man. And uh, – you know, I think that's, uh, and he proved it with the end run and with everything else. Uh, you fake to the left and you run to the right, or whatever you want to say. And uh, yeah, that, that that was a brilliant move on his part. You know, he had for six months leading up to it had everything looking like it was going to come in through the Persian Gulf, uh, up through uh, uh, Bar, uh, well, Basra and all of those areas up through there. I thought they were going to come that way and and it kind of looked like it was but then he did the end around and and caught everyone by surprise and uh i think he even caught some of the news media by by surprise uh (laughs) which i loved Uh, but it you know this is uh his story is very interesting and you know it's uh like general dix it's uh on our radio station uh it just I can't say it enough. We have the greatest military in the world. And no doubt. our weapons wouldn't be worth a damn if it wasn't for the people that were in charge of using them. And uh, my hat's off to you. Any pilot, my hat's off foot, too. And uh, the, everything that our military does, I have respect for. And we can be blamed for a lot of things, but we are still the... It's sort of like going into a fight, and we're the cleanest fighters in the world, if that makes sense. And I yeah, don't sure. know that that uh, sometimes we're rewarded as by the world for what we do and what we've done. But uh, I, by the way, I don't give many lieutenant colonels orders. But you're driving me nuts. By are you calling me sir just because I'm older than dirt? 
Not because <laughs> not because I outrank you. I know that not as an A five anyway. But uh, well, you know, growing growing up in the South, it was it was drilled into us that we say sir and ma'am to all of those that we respect. And I even I even tell my seventeen year old son, I call him sir. And he has learned that as well, and I've heard a lot of nice things of how he acts when he's away from me because he, um, he's been he's been drilled uh, or taught, I should say, how to pay your respects to people. And I say, sir, to to you because I respect what you've done because it made my career so much easier. So okay. I, I, my hats off to you. Thank you, sir. And uh, you know my. My two boys, one's a CPA and one's, like I said, a major in the Air Force. And uh, both of them were taught the same way and to respect other people's property. Uh, They were taught early on as two, three-year-olds, you don't go on somebody else's yard without asking them. It's not your yard, it's their yard. And uh, we should have, in my opinion, should have more of that uh, in our world today. But... Uh, I can't control everybody's kid by any means, so we just have to go along with what we got. But um, any anything that uh, anybody, right quick, anybody that sticks out in your mind, I know you, you've mentioned just like I have that uh, we have friends from AIT or whatever it might be, but uh, is there anyone that sticks out in your mind that you'd like to give a shout-out to? Well, when you when you say that, I immediately think of those that gave their all. And uh, there was a lieutenant commander, lieutenant commander Ron Rhino Wise, who was my direct supervisor when I was in the Navy. He 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 perished in a Tomcat accident, and um, one of the guys that I replaced in that Air Force Exchange tour uh, was killed. Flying uh, in April of 2003 in, in Operation Endure, uh, Iraqi Freedom 2. Well, you know, those are the guys I, I'd like to, you know, shout out to their families. Of, you know, we still stay in touch with them and, and try to uh, help provide scholarships. And that's one of the things the, uh, the, the River Rats, the fighter pilot organization, provides scholarships for the, the children of those who, who's, um, have gone on to college is that, you know, should they have perished in, in Salty's case, he had two children that their college has already been taken care of. So we've got uh, some great organizations. Just, you know, the, the person that introduced me to you, uh, Colonel White himself, uh, a member of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And I, if uh, I can interrupt you, right, to, if I can interrupt you with that, uh, I was going to bring this up that uh, I talked to Rick, uh, Colonel White, uh, many times during the week, generally speaking, but he did want me to mention that uh, the indoctrination, the induction ceremony that's generally held or is, was scheduled to be held on November the 7th in uh, Columbus, Georgia, uh, is being postponed until a future date uh, at some point when the coronavirus is over with and uh, we'll be announcing that date. I also want to mention that Georgia has become a quite a, a place for veterans uh the healing wall in johns creek georgia in newtown park is great it's a replica of the 
And it's the one that went traveling all over the United States. It's the replica of the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C., a 50% size. It now has a permanent home in Johns Creek, Georgia. And we invite any and everybody to come to Newtown Park and look up their loved ones, their friends. or And it's called the Healing Wall. And a lot of... A lot of uh, there's a lot of closure there, and it's always you're always invited to go to Johns Creek and go to the Healing Wall. Yes, sir. That's uh, that that wall itself came to our little small town here in North Georgia, and it was quite the experience to see that. And uh, one other place, uh, Perimeter Center has their own memorial to uh, Vietnam veterans, and we invite you to go there. And uh, it just I tell you, I I love the fact that we as a country are daily more and more looking to and giving thanks and respect to veterans like yourself. And I want to publicly thank you for your service, Whitey, and all the people that you served with. And it, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for people like yourself and the veterans that have gone before all of us and i want i always want everybody to know know that and uh, again i want to thank colonel rick white retired that put you and i together and he helps me with every show and he is a wonderful gentleman a, a great director of the georgia military veterans hall of fame and just I am extremely proud to to know Rick and be able to call him a friend. I, I agree. He is a uh, wonderful military officer, and then to hear him speak, uh, he spoke at one of the uh, Shriner events that they were putting on for the veterans down in Atlanta, and his speech was one of the most moving uh, monuments to our civility and our community that I've ever heard. It was incredible. Hey, the, if you ever need a, a fantastic speaker, he is highly recommended. He, he's the one, huh? Well, we'll have, we'll I have think to put Rick is. on our uh, speaker list. Make an even bigger difference. Whoops. Consider joining he, the he's US a good one. With tra- and uh, we've got so many great. Roger Wise uh, is a super individual. And I tell you what, it's hard to beat a veteran. Well, we, we've had uh, we've had some some great men that laid the foundation for uh, for the veterans organizations that you know deserve all the accolades there. Great minds that, that designed how we do our operations. We've got uh, some some great leaders even today, and that are uh, they are no nonsense kind of guys that get the job done. Whitey, we're going to other people. We're going to have to move on. We got another show coming up, but. I do want to thank you again for being a part of David's pick, and uh, and I want to thank Rick White again for getting us in touch with each other and look forward to, uh, I always ask, will you come back? I would love to come down and be in the, in the studio with you one day, David. I think it would be a lot of fun. I think we could handle that just any time. We'll, I'm sure Rick will be back in touch with you. Thank you, sir, and thank you for serving our country, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. Look forward to our next visit. Thank you, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.